In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Welcome back, everybody, to Not Another True Crime Podcast. I'm Sarah Levine. And I'm Danny Murphy. And Sarah, let everyone know why we're so excited today. We are so excited. If you follow us on Instagram and Not Another True Crime, you probably already know what's coming. But we have a an expert, a criminal defense attorney, Jason Goldman. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I know. We're very excited because obviously me and Sarah talk about a lot of crimes and events going on every week. But we talk about it with as much knowledge as we have, which, which is, is minimal. <laughs> so we're very excited to have you here to offer a more full-on experience, discussion, exploration of all of this, too. I feel like you guys are the experts, actually. <laughs> I think so. Well, thank you. I'll take that to my honorary law degree. <laughs> Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do? Yeah, I, I defend all the good people in the world, the people that are accused of serious crazy crimes day in and day out they call me and i go to court for them and i try to get them off in some way or another so that's what i do on a day-to-day basis in short yeah well actually one of our listeners asked if there's any kind of defendant or crime that you would not defend um there's one only one i can really think of which would be a terrorist okay not not my cup of tea (laughs) but I'll, i'll i'll also caveat that with there's two sides to a lot of stories, and I, I thought I would never defend, you know, someone accused of child rape, and I have before, and I found out that they were innocent, and it was proven that they were innocent. So, even someone accused maybe of terrorism, I would I would take a, a look at it, but that would be one where if they were very guilty, I wouldn't want to get them off on a technicality. I would just let someone else take that one. I think I feel. That's also such an interesting point you bring up because obviously so much of a media cycle has ebbs and flows of like it starts with a narrative and everyone's like, oh, that is the narrative. And then there's been so many stories lately or just always in documentaries that come out later where like, oh, that person was fully innocent. And it just kind of like spiraled out to one direction, too. Yeah, that that's my job in a nutshell. And I feel the same way. I've gotten into cases. I've I've gotten in the first couple of minutes and I've looked at it, too, and I said, He's 100% guilty. There's nothing to do here. Or I can do something, but it's not going to be great. And then my perspective changes, too. I find out more. And then my job is to make everyone else find out more. That was one of our other listener questions was if there had been a time you thought or knew a defendant was or client was guilty. But I guess you just answered that. So so what I'm wondering is for anybody who maybe because I feel sometimes we have younger listeners or maybe also some people do a pivot for a career later in life to law or anything along those lines. What is one piece of advice or thing you kind of go back to to help you do what you do? Like, is there a kind of like overarching thing that you kind of go by? Yeah, I mean, I I think everyone, it's corny, but everyone deserves a defense. And if you don't, if we don't stand up for those people, then the government could just trample all over them. And it's, it's, you know, this could be a family member, this could be a close friend of yours, and it could seem trivial or petty. But if there's not my line of work to keep them in check, then you're going to get arrested and you're going to get a lot of time in prison and you're going to suffer all these consequences. And 
you know, my job, even for the guilty people, is to make sure that they don't get trampled all over because you know, those rights are important. And, you know, I don't believe in decades of, of prison for a lot of crimes. So that's kind of what I fall back on, even when defending the very guilty people, which a lot of my clients are, 99% of them. So it's, it's, I have to fall back on that. So we want to kind of talk to you about some recent cases that our listeners are interested in, that we're interested in. First, I put this up on our stories, and I was just like, what What do you want to talk about? Everybody said the Idaho college murders. And I guess the latest, well, this is not really the latest, but at his, at Brian Koberger's, who's the accused killer, at his arraignment, uh, I think last month, he stood silent and didn't enter a plea. Can you just kind of explain what that means and like why you would do that? Well, each state works a little bit differently. I wouldn't look too much into that. I think okay. his lawyer kind of expressed for him that he's pleading not guilty, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's like all shocked when a defendant doesn't say something in court. But a lot of the times, even in New York, it's the same thing. So the not entering a plea thing is is probably just a technicality for that state. Of course, he's pleading not guilty. If he pled guilty already, then they would have convicted him and he would be facing a sentencing. So it just means yeah. he's fighting the case. Yeah, he just like effect he effectively pleaded not guilty and the judge entered it on his behalf. Okay. So I think our, our listeners were just like, what why would you why would you do that? <laughs> and if there's like even like a tactic to being yeah, silent. Yeah, we were like, curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean I don't he he's someone that it could come out. I think there's probably some sort of mental health ish type of situations and he couldn't might not be all there. So perhaps his lawyer said not to say anything. Um Maybe just didn't trust him even uttering those two words. Sometimes I don't trust my clients to, you know, say the simplest thing in court. And I'm like, let me just do this for you. Let's just have the court do it as, as, you know, odd as that is sometimes. Okay. Well, I think the latest on that for anyone who's listening is uh, he is asking the judge for more time to decide if he's going to offer an alibi. Uh, According to Idaho law, a criminal defendant has 10 days to inform the court whether they plan to provide an alibi. So he's asking for more time now. That's that. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It's I'm I'm dealing with a case right now in New York. They have a very similar rule. It's I think eight days after you're arrested, huh. you have to offer an alibi because they don't want you to make it up over time. Mm. They say oh, if you're being truthful sense. about this, you should be able right away to say who's your alibi witness, where you were, so the government can check it out and preserve records and things like that. And it's rightfully it's very tricky later on to put in that notice to the court. You know, three years later, something I'm dealing with right now. Because you know the the rules in place for an obvious reason. So, and is there ever a thing? Because obviously that is a like a a rule, but I feel like sometimes rules can get like picked at a little bit. Is there a fear if you wait the entire duration of that to come up with an alibi? Are is like the opposing side able to like poke holes and bring that up, or do they not get into how long it takes to? up an alibi um they potentially can but even to get to that level you run into the first issue of the court might not allow it they can say no you're past the time and from a legal standpoint we're not allowing you to present an alibi at trial because you 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 know went way over the limit so if you don't you know uh, satisfy one of these good cause Mm -hmm. exceptions and there's reasons sometimes that you can can skirt around it various reasons but if you don't you got to first satisfy the court and then Mm -hmm. second you're right the government to an extent, at trial, they can kind of pick into the, the um, you know, they can impeach the alibi by saying, well, it took you a year or two uh, to step forward, right? So kind of look out for that in this case. Interesting. Yeah, well, that's one we'll be watching. Oh, yes. I feel that it's going to be, a, the summer is going to be very captivated by that. And also because I feel everyone is wondering, like, will he speak at all in the upcoming trial or anything. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I see. He has an interesting look to him. He like has that that kind of I'm not gonna say serial killer look to him, but 
it's like made for TV. It's weird. His he has kind of scary eyes, but I also yeah. sometimes I think like it's it could be a little bit of hindsight bias. Like not to defend the guy, but I'm like mm. I don't know. I, never, he does I, have crazy eyes, but at the same time, I feel like we would say that about anybody. <laughs> he's got like the Ted Bundy look. He's like clean shaven. He's like not a bad looking guy, and it's it's not your everyday defendant. I think that that he looks like. I that's a terrifying thing too. Where people are like, you're like, oh god, is this gonna be the new Ted Bundy situation of people like no. looking? Yeah, no, please no. That was I feel like that was already happening not with him but somebody else, and I'm blanking on who it was. So why did I even say that? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, God. Like no. people were already thirsting oh, well, after I mean, some. Everyone some was cr- like weirdly thirsting over Johnny Depp, if that's what you're bringing up. But that was like in a <laughs> weird, in, I don't even know how that was occurring for them, but who knows. Uh, but another case that a lot of people are looking into is the new updates to Natalie Holloway as well. Because uh, uh, Joran Vandersloot is now, he j- was brought into the U.S. to be questioned. Yeah, I think trial. he's getting... Yeah, charged, right? So so they've charged him. So mm-hmm. what happened is this is like 10 years ago, he was convicted. He's serving time in Peru for strangling a girl. Go mm-hmm. figure. And around that time, coincidentally, he had reached out to Natalie's mom and said, if you give me $250,000, I'll give you information about your daughter. Just straight uh, blackmail extortion. It's, it's totally something that someone who didn't kill her would do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what the You're hell? Like, how do you just casually do that? Exactly. So the mom went to the FBI Smart. The FBI set up an undercover sting to pretend that they were going along with his plan. And he completed the, or they completed the transaction. They gave him a fake $25,000. And he said, okay, I'll give you guys information. The minute that happened, they charged him. So he's been charged for about 10 years. But he's been serving time in Peru, which doesn't necessarily have an extradition agreement with the United States. Mm -hmm. But recently, the government's kind of came to an agreement to bring him to the United States to face those charges. So he's not facing anything about the death per se. He's facing this extortion and wire fraud charge. And, you know, they're looking to get some justice, obviously. And yeah. this is an interesting, and I guess to the point, this is a good question for you, because you said the FBI literally did the exchange with him yeah. with the fake money, yeah. but he's pleading not guilty to the money, the extortion. Oh, yeah. How, so <laughs> is he, what, what is his attempt there? He's like, that wasn't me. Yeah, like, no, no, There, there's... I don't know what defense you come up with here. It's not going to be pretty. For his lawyer, it's just like, look, he's already serving God knows how long, much time in Peru. This guy's never going to see the light of day again. So it's it's there's probably no defense. And I wonder if they could do it. Well, it was fake money you gave him. So how can you extort fake money? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if that Best would work for that. him. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you feel like the Holloways could take him to civil court? I know it's not really your thing, but like. No, they can't. I mean, they can. Um, and I don't know if anything was ever filed. This is the thing with civil cases is that. For the most part, you civil's about money. Mm-hmm. So if the person doesn't have an incredible amount of money or it doesn't involve a bigger entity, then a lot of times it doesn't go towards civil court. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw it with the OJ case because OJ himself, very rich. So mm-hmm. they were able to get some justice in civil mm-hmm. court. Yeah. But, you know, I deal with homicides and all those types of things. And outside of criminal, a lot of the time they say, am I going to be sued civilly? And I say, you're probably not because it's going to be a waste of time for them. You know, you don't have that kind of money where it's worth their five years to go after you mm-hmm. for a civil suit of $25 million. Person doesn't have you know more than $100,000 to their name sometimes. Right, that makes sense. And for updates on this guy too, I just, cause I just uh, picked this part out. He married a woman while in prison too. I think I saw that. Yeah, Gross. in 2014, at a, in a ceremony <laughs> at a maximum security prison. I wonder what the not registry is like for one of those. Ramen Beautiful. noodles. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> also, he kept on, he's been shuffled around prisons a lot because he's been enjoying like TV, internet access, 
and a cell phone. And I think people weren't into him having that. And also he threatened to kill a warden. So he's not really upstanding member of society. Yeah. Oh my God. The, the, the whole Aruba thing, 2005, it was, it's just one of those crazy cold cases. Yeah. It's sad and crazy and they never solved it. Technically, they never solved it. They yeah. never had enough to, you know, think they could charge him and convict him. And so what do you feel? And obviously, this is just all just um, speculation at this point. But do you feel there could be a chance of closure for this family? Like, do you think he would probably be the person who is behind all this and like to answer anything? Or? Yeah, I, look, I think the extortion thing relates, obviously, like you said, it's it's he sounds like someone that's involved in it. <laughs> he's trying to get money out of them for it. So I do think it helps him get some justice. And I think. I think they're already getting some justice. He's behind bars in Peru. It's not for, you know, Natalie's death, but for someone else's. And we all know, right? And the family knows this guy was involved and he probably did it. So I think him being behind bars already gives them something. Um, might not be the, the ultimate closure that they want. I don't know if they'll ever get that. Right. I mean, at least he's not walking around free, but. That's, yeah, but I, it's, it's yeah. a hard thing just like for this family. Because like you oh, said, totally. it's been so long. that, And they probably all like know it's him just to give them that peace of mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's the, the that's what's tough about the cold cases is there's the, the lack of closure. Like yeah. this poor mom, it's like 20 years later, and I'm sure she's happy he's coming to the United States and facing charges, but it just never ends. No. It's like a memory just keeps coming back. So, and you see that some, I mean, we just saw that with Madeline McCann's family where there was the girl who thought she was Madeline McCann, was it? Oh, you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just since, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting one. case we want to talk about was Scott Peterson. We're actually really interested to get your take on it. I remember this was back in December. I think there's been an update since then, but in December, a judge rejected a new trial for Scott and he was appealing based on juror misconduct because yeah. there was that one crazy juror with the red hair who mm -hmm. like, according to Scott's legal team, lied about having been involved in a domestic violence right. incident. According to her, she like forgot. <laughs> but he's still claiming that he's innocent and yeah. Very curious to get your takes on everything. Yeah, that's that's always been an interesting case. Um, you know, the juror misconduct thing is is probably not going to be enough. I mean, the judge declined it already. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not going to be a difference maker. And he's filed appeal after appeal and tried a million different things. I saw something interesting. I know this has been out there for the last few years, but there was something about I guess he was claiming that there was like burglaries next door yeah, and yeah. and some violent things in the neighborhood leading up to and I guess that didn't get in at trial or it was precluded. That's an interesting ground to go on and I know that he's tried to pursue that before and focus his efforts there. That's something real perhaps that they can, you know, get some ground on. But this guy's filed appeals that have been like five hundred pages, eight hundred pages and <laughs> God bless him for not giving up. So I saw the latest got denied like six months ago. So I yeah. don't know where he goes from here. Yeah, I mean, that was, I feel like, a big revelation in this, like, A&E documentary was that there was a burglary across yeah. the street and some on the same day or maybe, like, the day before the murders and, and there was maybe a witness yep. report of a pregnant woman, like, mm -hmm. talking to some burglars across the street. Yeah. But I, it's interesting because I, I feel like no one wants to, like, ride or die for Scott Peterson. Like, I know. if this That's was anybody hard, else, yeah. you would maybe have like a groundswell of like, where is like the outrage and everything. But I feel like no one is really. <laughs> I know. I Scott, the Scott Peterson case always interesting. And it's the premise of that movie Gone Girl. And oh, totally. I was yeah. refreshing myself over the weekend. And <laughs> yep. that was part of it. Like ride or die. Everyone couldn't figure out the guy's personality. He mm -hmm. was like very calm. 
He had affairs. He was arrested like near the Mexico border with his hair dyed blonde. I mean, that's not a good look. Yeah. That's not no. a good look. And and I don't know how you slice it. So I know the evidence itself was weak in terms of the homicide, but, you know, they found a pair, uh, a clipping of her hair like in his boat with some pliers and there's some cement. So there was there was evidence there. And then you couple it with what we know of his personality, the intricacies of that. I mean, he was cheating on her with like three different girls. So. I don't know. I don't and know called it, one of them at was the vigil. Th- That's actually the thing that I really just will never yeah. get over was like he called her at her vigil. And How? why do I feel? Wasn't he like planning a trip to Paris at the vigil? Or talking her, about talking it. About yeah, and, yeah. and like two weeks before yeah. the murder, he told one of the girls that he was single. Yeah. And that his wife had died. It's not so a good that's look. the thing no, where I'm like, I don't look. know. Like, I could maybe believe that you're like the unluckiest guy in the world, but then how do that's, you explain all this other shit? Exactly. That that's the whole thing. When you don't have a strong direct case, you as a prosecutor, you say he has to be the unluckiest person in the world for all of these different things to exist. Mm-hmm. But he's not guilty of the murder. But all these other things exist in the world for him. But he's just so unlucky. Yes. That is a very yeah. I really I can't imagine anything really going in his favor with that because he kind of is in the bed he lied. I do, it is interesting that he uses a Zoom background though. Yeah, I saw that. Wasn't <laughs> yeah. like a green Wait, for what? Because for a second, I, that. <laughs> oh, this, oh Because yeah. I was like, where happy. is he? Yeah, I, he thought, I thought they released him for some Doing reason. Doing some Zoom, yeah, he literally Zoomed from uh, prison. That was the thing, because he says there's like six new people who can help his alibi. And I'm like, where have they been? For- <laughs> he's, look, he's gonna keep trying. He's gonna, you know, the family that still supports him, it's tough because he's he's kind of taking them for the ride too. Yeah. Um, you know, part of it's that. I've dealt with some people, you know, 20, 25 years into their sentence, they'll contact me. I'm innocent. Look into this. And part of me is like, they wouldn't be making their family go through this too because the family's paying the bills and supporting right. them and all this stuff. I'm like, you know, maybe he is innocent because he's doing this. And then the other part of it is, you know, I have clients in prison and, uh, you know, they'll call me and I'll still talk to them and they'll say, you know, well, they'll laugh about it. They'll say, everyone's innocent in here. Everyone's innocent. Everyone's fighting their case. Everyone, no one did it. And we know it's not true. So, yeah. you know, there's the Scots of the world and we don't know. That's, yeah. So interesting. Another case that I feel like, did you get into the Adnan Sayed case in Serial? Were you following that? Yeah, I followed it. I followed it when the podcast came out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that has been just such a wild ride, I feel like. It has. What's the latest? What was the latest? The latest was that he got, like, well, actually, he got released, but his conviction got overturned, but then the family appealed because they weren't at the hearing or properly notified. And I think he's not in prison right now, but that's... They're having a hearing Yes, I think. Oh, actually, this happened three days ago. Yeah, they appealed. Well, so three days ago, they... The family of the Heyman Lee appealed to the Maryland Supreme Court, um, and they basically challenged a lower court's decision. So I think it's just kind of making its way. But I think for now he's not in prison. But yeah, yeah, I, I, that's probably one of those like odd state rules because the in a criminal case the victim's family doesn't control a lot of these outcomes in the process. So I don't know what the legal grounds were for the court to actually say, well, we got to redo this because mm-hmm. they weren't notified of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have, we have cases all the time in New York, you know, criminal rape case where we might get a deal or or there's a sentencing and they're not controlled by the victim necessarily. So, mm-hmm. you know, the victim saying, I'm not on board with this. Happened in Cuba Gooding Jr. recently. Oh, in his yeah. criminal case, he kind of low-key got a slap on the wrist on a very last hearing. And the next day in the New York Post, like the victim's family, they're like, we didn't know about this. This is crazy. And nothing changed afterwards because they don't control the case in criminal. It's the prosecutors. So it's it's 
it's weird that that happened. I don't know how this hearing's going to go. Sh- I think he'll be fine now that he's out, but never-ending saga. That's so, I mean, yeah, it's really one of those cases. I feel like I got to listen to Serial again or, or like, lo- like read the court documents because it's, it's just so Serial like pioneered the, the true yeah. crime oh, yeah. podcast <laughs> they, stuff. I know. And, they ran so we could live. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you were talking about how all these like different like weird state laws do you, is there any in particular in like New York? Cause I feel like a lot of our listeners are in New York that are like kind of that you're like, it doesn't like laws that don't exist are like, a, like you said, how like the family had to be there mm. for XYZ. Is there anything like that in New York that doesn't happen in other states? Probably off the top of my head. That'll have to come to me later on mm-hmm. the, in the, in the show. Um, <laughs> there's definitely some odds and ends with each state, but there's a lot of crossover too. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are like, there's no self-defense in New York. There is. There's self-defense everywhere. There's self-defense. Is that a thing that people think? I think I people have said some like some clients have wow. called me. Oh, isn't there no self-defense? I'm like, no, no, no. Of course, there's self-defense oh, everywhere. That's crazy. So it's, I'll have to think of of New York's weird uh, statute that doesn't apply elsewhere. Come to me later on. <laughs> Come to me later on. <laughs> yeah. What is uh, also being really talked about in the news is that uh, the attorneys for the Menendez brothers. Uh, is claiming that there's new evidence that could overturn their life sentences. Yeah, I saw that. And that's like, a, I feel like that almost must be like a life sentence to overturn, I feel, is a very bold thing to say that could happen. Yeah. I mean, it's that's like the Scott Peterson sentence. Yeah. But in terms of the new evidence, I mean, did you read it? It's about I, another boy band member said that yeah, he was from yeah. Menudo, right? abused by the dad. Um, but I, I'm a skeptic on that one, too, because... You know, that evidence was kind of precluded at the second trial for Menendez brothers. They wanted to introduce more about how their dad sexually abused them Mm -hmm. and how they told cousins about it, yada, yada, yada. But that doesn't change, I think, the cold hard facts of the case, which is them Mm -hmm. running into a living room with shotguns, essentially, and like blowing their dad's head off and their mom's. It it doesn't, it's still, uh, we just talked about self-defense. It still has to be reasonable. Mm -hmm. So... Them saying, oh, my dad abused me and I'm scared of him. That's one thing. But were you physically at that very moment, did he say, I'm coming into your room if you tell anybody and I'm going to shoot you in the head? That stuff never really came out. So what? It, it's not a defense in court to say, I was sexually abused by my dad as a kid. I'm scared of him. So I ran into the living room and shot him. I think, yeah, it's interesting because I feel like at the time there was this whole like, did he, didn't he thing about the abuse? But mm-hmm. it's very clear like... No, he, he liked it. They told a lot of people. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that even that's what I'm saying is even with that out there and now you hear yeah. from a boy band member and these other cousins that knew about it, all this stuff. I think they're just barking up a tree, unfortunately, because they have nothing else to go on yeah. where I don't think it changes the analysis just of the crime scene of them running in. It, they didn't feel, you know, they're claiming they did, but I don't think the evidence shows that at that particular moment, either the parents are saying we're coming into your room to harm you. And they said, oh, my God, we got to get guns. And shoot our parents. Yeah, I don't. I don't see the application there. I know that, that was their big theory at trial, and tried to play that up. And you know, I get the sympathy for it, but from a legal standpoint, it's how do you justify that? And do you think too, it is that hard level where this new evidence the attorneys claiming is very similar to the evidence that they were sort of using before of it being in like the same? It's not like a completely new thing brought out about abuse. It's like. Yeah, it's just what they're trying to do is just say that there's corroboration for it. And it, it it bolsters their claim because if a judge precluded some of it and said, oh, it's not reliable, it's not trustworthy, they're saying, no, it is because now we have another random person that said he was abused. We have another mm-hmm. cousin that we wrote. There was something about one of them wrote a letter to another cousin saying, like, my dad abused me again last night. Like, I'm frightened. 
So that new evidence comes out, even though the theory was already known. Um, but like I said, I think even the judge just looks at it and says, okay, I'll give you that. Like, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. But does it change the lack of justification for the, the violence that they did? Mm-hmm. Do you think it, it may be in a different, like, world if this trial were happening again? Do you think it would maybe change the sentence? I think it, I think it could. Um, I think it could. And I think it might have even been played differently, maybe for just trying to get a plea without going to trial, perhaps, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of what we call mitigation, which is, you know, put the facts aside, but look at who committed the crime, why they committed it, what the justification is, not necessarily from a legal sense, but, mm-hmm. you know, how they got here. That's a lot of my work. A lot of, like I told you, a lot of my clients are guilty, but I look at, you know, why did they commit this crime? What was going on behind it? You know, quote unquote excuses for a certain extent, but did they have a drug problem? Were they abused as a child? You know, X, Y, Z, and just put the facts aside for a minute and see if we can get them a better sentence, get them a plea without going to trial maybe. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those things where, I don't know, yeah, life in prison just seems like a lot. Because <laughs> it doesn't seem like, like I don't they know. They, married it was a very I think they particular got married in prison or something. <laughs> Everybody uh, always everyone, does is it. that the, like it's the new dating app. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Wow, yeah. I know, it's wild. <laughs> It's such a weird uh, thing. I feel like that happens to so many. You know what it is a lot of the time? It's a lot of, especially those high profile cases, it's like fans that are like writing letters to them Mm -hmm. and they like start visiting them and speaking to them and those end up in marriages that I've read. Oh my God. So many. Like like Stephen Avery had like four prison wives or something like nuts. And it's like the Gwyneth Paltrow thing where you don't live with your partner. She doesn't yeah. live with her partner. It's kind of, you know, yeah. It's an interesting arrangement for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, all those cases, Menendez, how everything we've touched on, I was thinking about it too. It's it's so intriguing because it's all like late 90s, early yeah. 2000s. Yeah. And it's there's a reason why these ones are interesting to us because it was before phones, it was before social media. And, and it's harder to commit a crime these days than it was. I think mm-hmm. there was more questions back then. Yeah. You know, when you deal with those, like the Scott Peterson type of cases in today's world, you saw it with like the Murdoch, South oh, Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> that was, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been more of a murder mystery. But they fell back on what we have now, which is, you know, the government tracks us. So he can say all these different things, but they had cell site and they say, you were here at this time. This is when she died. They put it together and and it's a dumbed down version of it. But you don't see it in these other cases yeah. because it was 2000 and 1995. And that's what makes it so interesting. And it's almost that thing for people now. It's almost a level of like ignorance for them where they're like, oh, if I delete the text, it's gone. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's like, no, not at all. No, nothing's gone. Nothing um, is gone. It's my least favorite defense in 2023 is a, a misidentification or like an alibi defense because everything exists. Everything exists. You're being tracked your social media, you go into a department store to buy your clothes that you're going to use, that's on video. All this stuff is just, you know, it's it's easy passes. Everything you can think of, the technology is there. And it's my least favorite defense because in, in today's day and age, you're tracked every day and you can account for where you are every day. So to say, oh, it's an alibi, but I can't tell you where I was, we can all find it. And I, <laughs> and I feel almost even with that too, not obviously for cases of extreme like, murder and things like that, but more like crimes of like someone acting out, stealing someone, lashing out or something. Usually there's people around them picking up and like, oh, everyone's first instinct now is like cameras up. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's almost like you have like a 3D, five camera setup of every potential crime being committed. Yeah, no, it it, it changes everything that compared to what these were. And that's why a lot of the ones that you guys speak about and and 
other shows, it's naturally. You think about these cases from like the 80s, 90s, 2000s, the Holloways, all these things, and it adds an element of mystery for sure. I'm not sure how much you can talk about cases you're working on now or anything, but obviously these are such like cases that have been unpacked so much. Are there any, maybe even that you're not working on, if you can't get into that, but that you feel deserve more media attention or that you're kind of wondering why is this not getting people talking more or like, oh, this person just needs some more like eyes on them to kind of unpack things more? Um, Again, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. I mean, there's plenty out there. Um, There's so many, you know, there's a lot of cases post-conviction, people in prison and, you know, especially people that were convicted, right, in the 80s, 90s, these types of cases that, you know, they spend, unfortunately, they spend their days contacting attorneys and investigators and trying to get them brought back up in the news. And sometimes, you know, I'll get contacted and I'll I'll do a deep dive for a few hours into their case or I'll be hired maybe to look into some things. And in my heart of hearts, I'm like, this person is innocent. Can we Mm. find it? It's going to be very tough. But these elements are there, right? Where the evidence doesn't exist Mm -hmm. for it. They had an alibi, they got railroaded. You know, there was no technology to help them prove their innocence, which you don't have to do as a defendant, but when you're in prison, you have to do that. You have to bring in new evidence. So it's definitely out there. And a lot of the times I do think I'm like, if only this person had like a news outlet or I can help them get to one, which sometimes I do, it's hard to to gain the huge traction that you see with like the Adnan cases like mm-hmm. that. Like that could be anybody. There's a lot of those people. Yeah. There's a lot of Syeds um, and Serial just happened to pick up that podcast and that yeah. got him out of jail. Because of yeah, that podcast, yeah. he's out. So it's a lot of it's the exposure after you're convicted. And I feel like obviously our listeners are very into true crime and not everybody knows a ton about the legal system. Is there a big misconception mm. that you see people, I mean, you kind of brought up the no self-defense thing, but mm-hmm. you know, I think our perception gets warped a lot by like law and order and things like that. Yeah, I think the biggest, my toughest task and what I've gained from talking to jurors and doing jury selection and doing trials is people don't, it's hard for people to wrap their head around the the burden for criminal cases. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. It's the highest standard we have. And that's what we say to them. So it's not, you know, and I say this during trial, I say it on my closing, I say, it's not, oh, I think he did it. Thinking is not enough to convict somebody. He probably did it. Probably is not enough. Oh, I believe he did it. You know, it looks like him. That's not enough. Beyond a reasonable doubt is such a high standard. Mm -hmm. You have to have no reason to doubt it. And if you have a reason, your vote's not guilty. So I say that to people Mm. and it's hard for them. It's hard for them to say, am I really going to find this guy not guilty when I have all this evidence in front of me? And I say to them, look, it's, we're talking about prison versus not prison. So you better be sure of it. And, and if you're, if you're 70% sure, that's not enough. So that's the biggest misconception. And I think a lot of people from TV are, are familiar with the, the terminology beyond a reasonable doubt. But until you sit down in court and you know, also one of my first things I say during jury selection, I say, I introduce myself and I say, if the judge cuts me off right now and says, go deliberate, you haven't heard one piece of evidence, what's your verdict, guilty or not guilty? And they all say, oh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. How could I know? And I say, your verdict's not guilty. Right now, it's, mm. you plead not guilty. You're not guilty until they bring evidence to show beyond reasonable doubt. So it's not a tie. It's not their word versus our word, or my defendant's going to testify and you're going to hear from government witnesses. It's it's their case to prove. So us doing jury selection or making an opening statement to you or even the first witness, if that witness gets down and you're not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, 
your verdict's not, oh, I don't know yet. I got to hear more. It's he's not guilty right now, if you're asking me. So that's the misconception. That's my uphill battle when I when I go to trial is getting people to realize just because someone's been arrested and they sit at this table and they're a defendant, it doesn't not, it doesn't mean anything. People get arrested all the time. Being arrested is not beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. It just means that there's probable cause to put that person in handcuffs and bring them in, but that doesn't mean anything. So that's the the trickiest, most difficult part because we think that someone did something wrong because they're in handcuffs naturally. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to change people's mind and just say, you can't be lazy right now. You need to dive deeper. You need to challenge their evidence with me. And you need to, you know, can I say this? You need to have the balls to <laughs> yeah. say not guilty. If the evidence is not enough, and you say, well, he probably did it. Like, I just can't get around the fact that, you know, his phone pinged off of a tower near, but you have no other evidence. I say, save it for another day. He's not guilty. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you should be proud of that because that means the government was lazy or they didn't bring enough evidence. And although you don't know my client, this could be your dad tomorrow. This could be a work colleague. So mm. that's the misconception. Sorry for my ramble. No, no that, that, was good. that was a good answer. I was yeah. like, that's my trial pitch. I feel yes. like everyone right yeah. now is like, okay. Like, not if, guilty. Case if, dismissed. If shit gets the fan for me, I'm going to call Jason. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's the trial sure. pitch yeah. for sure. It's, I spend so much time just hammering. I, I don't even talk about the facts at the beginning. I just hammer that concept yeah. because you just, you think about, and I say, look, this is not a civil case. This is not about money. Mm -hmm. And a civil case, the standard's lower. It's just probable. Um, it's just probable. So 51% is enough in civil. If you think it's more likely than not, you can find the person liable. But that's not beyond a reasonable doubt. So if you have a reason to doubt it, and the, the judge says if you have an honest doubt, your vote's not guilty. Very tough. Bam. I know. It's tough. It is. Because it is so tough. I just What made you choose this type of law? Like, what, what drew you to... You want my honest answer? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> when, I was, when I was an intern, uh, my first internship, I went to Cardozo Law School. Mm -hmm. I was just out of college on 23 very first internship Bronx district attorney's office. So for the government. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of my very first days there, I was shadowing a prosecutor and he had in, uh, one of his victims to interview and it was a sex trafficking case and like a prostitution case. And this woman comes in, she has tattoos all over and we're in the Bronx and it's, it's just a scene. And, she so she was stabbed in the chest by her john by the guy that was basically controlling her and making her go out and, and oh be gosh. a prostitute oh. and she was stabbed in the chest because she didn't give him enough money after one of her nights out and she looked at me and she smiled with like a gold tooth in 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 her uh in the side of her mouth and she's like she's like boy she's like she's like thank god my tits are so big because he stabbed me right in the left one and if, if ah. my tits weren't so big it would have hit my heart and i would have died oh my god and i was ah. just like looked at the guy that i was shadowing and i looked at myself and i was like this is really entertaining. I'm going to stick with this. Like, this is hilarious. Um, oh my God. And from there, I just, I saw the entertainment of it. Um, now it's not, I mean, it's still entertaining on a day-to-day -day basis. It's obviously very serious and that was serious too, but she was laughing about it and, and it keeps me on my toes every day because it's those kind of stories. So that triggered me because I was very bored in law school until that moment. Um, and then I spent the rest of my days not studying at all, but I was reading about these trials and I got really into, I never knew anything about criminal defense or criminal trials growing up. So I got really into it. I did more of those internships, kind of had more similar funny experiences mm -hmm. and and I still do to this day. So that was, that's why. That's so cool. Was <laughs> yeah. there like a, a criminal case that you first got really into when you just started doing your own deep dives on the side? 
Oh, from an outsider standpoint? Yeah. Um, I did a lot of reading up on like the 1990s mob cases. Oh, yeah. Like, a lot of the John Gotti stuff mm-hmm. I was into. Um, the Casey Anthony one was kind of a that big one. That was actually one. one that everybody wanted us to talk about, but I was like, what even is there? That to was say what, about like two, mid 2000, like 2008 ish? Like, yeah, like yeah. I want to say 2004 ish, just because everything yeah. in my mind is 2004 ish, but. I was into yeah. that one, like when I was in law school. Um, probably, probably, yeah, yeah probably. what do you think about that one? That's another one of these Scott Peterson type of situations. It was kind of mm. just before, I mean, there was technology, but it was just before, I think, a lot of it. Yeah. And. You know, her defense was very interesting. It was a lot of circumstantial evidence. It was, she was kind of near the scene of the crime, but not there. She had wild behavior for 30 days after her daughter was missing. There was allegations of abuse between her dad to Casey. And then you you factor in Florida, and Florida's weird. All the weird (laughs) verdicts come out of Florida. (laughs) And that case was like made for not guilty. Like with that whole combination, and at the time, a young Jose Baez was was her attorney, who's now very big time, and that was a big case for him. And he got her off, and it's a it's a Scott. That was an interesting case, yeah, really interesting. And then just when everybody would just kind of like not stop thinking about her, but just think about her less, that documentary comes out just yeah. to make. Yeah, she's she's always like kind of dabbles with the media stuff. She should just shut up and yeah. not be around anymore. But that one, and and going back to kind of what we said before, there's so many of those cases out there, a missing child, a missing whatever the parents suspected, and that one just somebody's just gained traction, yeah. and and no one really knows how or why, but they do, and then we're all just fascinated by it, and that's one of those cases. It's yeah, it was totally weird which ones <laughs> become like national. Now, I wouldn't have the recipe for it. And like I said, I, if you look back, there's some interesting Florida case. It's always Florida, California. We've talked about oh, a few everything. California cases. Everything's California. California always has some weird ones. Florida does too. And then I think New York always has, uh, they're a little bit tighter, but yeah. but New York kind of has those interesting cases too. If, yeah, I don't, I don't know what we what, 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 our, <laughs> what our secret sauces are here. Yeah, yeah, I don't we know. got it going on. Oh my gosh. But thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us too today and unpacking all this with us. We definitely are going to have you back for some more... I'm happy uh, to. to explain all the big words that me and Sarah just ignore <laughs> talking about. That is what we're going to be calling you in on. I, I, I always can. I'm happy to come on and uh, educate and, and laugh. And there's a there's so much to get into in this criminal world. Like I said, um, it just kind of fascinates. That's, that's what keeps me going. Cause it's a grind and it's emotional toll. But oh God, yeah. I take a step back from it. And I'm like, it's just fascinating to me. And I couldn't imagine doing any other type of law it's boring to me i have a lot of friends that do that i'm not going to talk bad about them but <laughs> but you know i like going to court and being in front of judges and dealing with my clients and going out to visit them in prison when i have to and it's it's a lot but it's i mean the stakes are so high so there's mm-hmm. nothing like waiting for a verdict after your trial and you hear the words not guilty and it's like walking on water for me yeah yeah and then obviously like the victim's family like wants to kill me and and <laughs> it's it's no one's really happy except for me and the client and the client's family and <laughs> so you guys run out of there yeah <laughs> we, we run out of there yeah. um it's it's incredible feeling well thank you so much you're welcome thanks for having me yeah appreciate it and thank you guys again for listening of course any episode ideas themes anything that you think we should cover let us know on facebook at not another true crime group or DM it on Instagram and not another true crime. If you have questions for Jason, just drop it in there. We'll cover it in a subsequent ep. Otherwise, you can follow me on Instagram at Sarah Lameem. You can follow me at Cashmere Danny, Cashmere with Kat. And thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week.
Not Another True Crime Podcast is produced by Jorge Morales-Pico, Sean Kilby, and Rebecca Sosmacat. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Sarah Levine. Be sure to follow at Not Another True Crime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send all of your emails to natc at betches.com. Betches.